Thank you for tuning in to the Expository Word Podcast, where we are listening to classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. Let's pray together. Almighty God, at the same time, our Father, how grateful we are for the privilege to set aside the first day of the week in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, from the dead. To set it aside to gather together to sing songs, to study your word, to draw close to you, to have our minds renewed. Oh, Father, we so much desire to truly draw close to You. We really want to have the Holy Spirit work in our hearts. It's our hunger that we would not just taste religion, but we would know what it is to fellowship with the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit. And how desirous we are, Father, to know of the power of the resurrected Christ in our daily lives. And to have minds that think grateful thoughts. And that are quick and ready to do Your will. How easy it is to just go along with the flow and to stay superficial in our thinking. And how much we want Your Word to speak to us tonight. Thank You for the privilege to look forward to Vacation Bible School and to think of little children possibly truly understanding the Gospel and coming to Christ this week. We pray that would happen. And we are just excited, Father, now to study Your Word and to set aside this time to do so. I pray You would help me as I preach. I pray, Father, that You might minister to those that hear that through the application of the Word to our lives we may be changed. And Father, we would pray then for churches all over the world that are meeting tonight. And again, we would say, Lord, help our vision to be big. Just not on ourselves, but to realize they're saints that that maybe have different views on smaller doctrines, but they love You and they desire to further Your cause. And they love Christ. They want to exalt Him. And we pray for them as we've prayed for us that You might strengthen the body of Christ around the world. And it's our privilege now to turn and to study, and we ask for your blessing as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's important as we get to 1 Samuel 12 that we would really understand the setting of where we are. And if you haven't been familiar with the book of 1 Samuel, then you're not going to be too familiar with this setting. But again, let me take you through it so that you understand. The first seven chapters of this book have to do with Samuel and the way he came into Israel at the time of tremendous spiritual apostasy and decay. And then chapters 8-14 through has to do with Saul, the first king of Israel. Now in chapter 8, the whole scene is set when the group of people say, uh-oh, we need a king, we're in trouble, the nations are starting to surrounding us, we, we, we need someone that will lead us and be like the other nations, and we're scared. We don't know exactly why in chapter 8 they're asking, but we know that they're asking. And then we find out that both God and Samuel are tremendously discouraged over that request. But Samuel, but God says to Samuel, go ahead, give them a king, 
uh, and I'll direct that man to you. In fact, tomorrow at this time, he's going to come walking up to you. And then you hear a fantastic story of Saul and his servant out looking for some lost donkeys. And sure enough, they meet in that town right where God told Samuel they would be. And it's very ironic that the next king of Israel is a farm boy looking for lost donkeys. And then, of course, in chapter uh, 10, you have uh, Saul anointing Samuel being anointing Saul. And then Saul going, he says, now look, you're going to go here and meet two men, and they're going to uh, tell you this. And then you're going to go to this tree, and you're going to meet three men, and one's going to be carrying wine, one's going to have bread, one's going to have three goats under his arm, and they're going to say this to you. And then you're going to go to another place, and these prophets are going to come out of the hills with a band of leading them with tambourines, and they're going to say this to you. And all of that was to encourage Saul that God was truly with him. And then they stand up at Mizpah, and he gathers, he has this huge gathering in, uh, of Israel, and he says, all right, everybody, and there was a tremendous amount of excitement, if you can remember, the first king was about to be anointed publicly before all of Israel, because all of the events of chapters 8, 9, and 10, up to verse 17, nobody knows who the king is. And suddenly, the lot is cast, and through the process of time, it falls upon Saul, son of Kish. And they go, where is he? And how ironic that the next king is hiding in the luggage. And they have to say, come on out, King Saul. Come on out. And you've got to see the, the, the somewhat of humor that's there. Obviously, you don't see that tonight, but it is there. And then Saul comes out and they anoint him king. And about 80% of the people go, yes, he is king. Look at him. He's taller than everybody. This will be great. But about 20% of the people go, how can this guy save us? Then in chapter 11, there's some men up in the north eastern part of Israel and Jabesh Gilead on the other side of the river and King Nahash of the Ammonites comes along and says you guys either die or get your right eye gouged out which will it be and they're trembling and they say can we have some time and they send messengers out and Saul is out what a farm boy does after he's been anointed king is he does farm work and there he's out riding some oxen and he's out riding some oxen he comes back into the town of Gibeah and, he, and everybody's crying <laughs> and he goes what is everybody wailing for and they said they're, they're wailing because the, uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead are about to get their right eye gouged out. And the Spirit of God comes upon them and He unifies Israel by cutting up an ox, much like the concubine had been cut up in the book of Judges. And Israel comes out as a huge band of over 300,000 men. They cross the river, they attack, and they wipe out the Ammonites and no two of them were left. Then, everyone says, who were those guys that said that Saul shouldn't be king? Let's get them. And Samuel, or Saul goes, no, no, God has been good to us. We won't get anybody. And then Samuel stands up and goes, let's go back to Gilgal and let's have a, an ordination above, a, a, a coronation service like none other. Let's have everybody establish him as king. Now with that in mind, we start reading chapter 12, and now you know where you are in the scriptures. Let's read starting with chapter 12 and verse 1. Samuel said, now they're at Gilgal, Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you have said to me. I have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are with me here, and I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make, my, make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witnessed against you, and also His anointed is witnessed this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as do all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. 
After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals, the Asheroth, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you lived securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is your king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain, so all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die, for we have added to all the other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me... Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Now friends, this morning, and excuse me for having to walk over here, but we have this set up for Vacation Bible School. But I want you to know that this morning, as we studied the, this book of First Samuel, and we we, we uh, went around the map, and then we looked at some application principles. And the first application I want you to see, just quickly by way of review, and I tell you, I hope that it will sink into your heart. And this is actually, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit wants you to get from 1 Samuel 12, this is the proper literary hermeneutic. This is what it's about. 1 Samuel 12 is about this. The principle is, God will relentlessly pursue you in order that you might see your guilt and repent of it. Now, we established the entire text, well, we went through it quickly. I only had 30 minutes and I was racing like a mad machine this morning, you know. But, but still, the principle I think you can see that comes out of this text is God will relentlessly pursue you in order that you might see your guilt and repent of it. The reason we know that is if we had to break this down, if you saw this as, as sort of a, a, a board leading to the crescendo, the crescendo would be the dark black. The first five verses, Samuel vindicates his covenant faithfulness. And then in verses 6-11, through Samuel summarizes the Lord's righteous acts and His faithfulness to Israel. The crescendo being verses 12 and 13. You did this wicked thing by asking for a king, now here's your king. And then Samuel again summarizes in verses 14-19, through and this is the way the writers wrote. Exactly like in chapter 11, where the crescendo in chapter 11 is verse 6, where the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. So the central portion of 1 Samuel 12 is that he observes that you've asked in a selfish way this wicked deed, asking for a king. And then, of course, you can see how it matches up point for point all the way across across the top and the bottom. So because of that, we happen to remember that God relentlessly pursues us because He loves us that you might see your guilt and repent of it. One of the main things I want to underscore on this point is this. Four different times Samuel speaks to Israel. Twice in chapter 8, once in chapter 10, and then again in chapter 12. 
And every one of those times, on occasions when everybody should have been happy, when it should have been a wonderful event of inauguration or a second coronation, he cannot, Samuel cannot, being a man of God, stop speaking about Israel's guilt. And that guilt is that they have not seen what they have done by asking for a king. He says you've got to see it. It's something that you must see. Now, we talked this morning about Mike, my friend across the street growing up. He was a little three or four year old boy and I was older. And remember he started to stink. And we said, why did he start to stink? No one could know it and we couldn't stand to be around him. And the reason that he stunk is he took a two inch piece of rubber hose and stuck it up his nose. And as he walked around, he forgot all about it, being a two and a half or three year old boy. And after two or three months, it was just a rotten stench. I can remember you just would start to choke if you got close to him. And the point is this. That is the same point here. God will relentlessly pursue you in order for you to see your guilt and repent of it. And we looked at several scriptures this morning to help establish that. But that is important for, for you to remember. Now, the second thing I want you to see in, in light of, of these things is... Let me grab a piece of paper to cover this up. But the second part that I want you to see, and by the way, you can see uh, the, the writer of Proverbs and David's, David's absolute agony being out of fellowship with God as he writes in Psalm 32... And there's much more that you can see. But the second thing I want you to see is that God does motivate by fear. And if you can't see that, it says God motivates by fear. And it is so true in verses 16 through 19. In verses 16 through 19, Samuel concludes his sermon and he goes, Now God's going to underscore this. The illustration comes directly from heaven. And all the people were listening to this. For the fourth time they had heard God is upset for the fact that you asked for a king. They had to be awfully tired. I, I want to just underscore again, I did it in one of the services this morning, how incur much encouragement I have personally got from the fact that Samuel had to deliver the same message to Israel in a short period of time, four times. You know why? Because oftentimes I turn to the staff and I go, you know what, these people are going to throw me out. I'm going to say the same thing to them again this week. And it's about sin and repentance and living holy and living for Christ. But can I tell you, God will send his man to you. If I am the prophet for God in the sense of being a pastor teacher to the church to speak the, the oracles of God, as the first Peter says, if that's the case, often some of the messages may be very similar. And one of the reasons is God is relentless in order to get you to see your guilt, not in order to just pound you, but in order to make you repent. The second thing is, as Samuel finishes the message, a huge thunderstorm breaks out. Thundering and lightning cracking all around. And, and, and I, re I remember reading... Um, where Whitfield was preaching in the field one day, and right at the end of his sermon, a huge thunderstorm broke, and he says, there it is, you sinners, you better come to Christ. That's the anger of Jehovah against you. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened with Samuel, but I can tell you this, that God does indeed motivate by fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is important for us in our generation, if we want to know how can we pass this faith onto our next generation. We've got to just get away from a lovey, ooey-gooey, feel-good God that all He wants to do is just all time just embrace you the way you are. That is not taught anywhere in Scripture. And in Scripture for us to come out clear and to say, look, at God hates your sin. Or like the bumper sticker. You know, it always says, um, um, smile, God loves you. And, and I remember a professor in school saying, you should have another one, frown, God hates your sin. And I, and I can remember, you always see, you know, Jesus is coming. And but if someone said you should put something under it that says Jesus is coming again and this time he's really ticked, you see? And the fact is there, there is a sense in which we need to realize to tremble before a holy God is a good thing. Every man and every woman in the Bible that understood the greatness of God looked at him in a trembling way. We referred again to the F-16 story where you hear men talk about the, the pilots and the F-16s and the power and they look at them with this glee in their eye. Look at what they can do. And there is such a loss of that in the church towards the Almighty God. There is such a sense of, he's my good old buddy, him and I, we just do things together. And there is a sense in which even John trembled before the risen Christ and fell at his feet as though dead in Revelation chapter 1. And we must keep that 
clearly before us. Amen? And, and to continue to move on in our application, this is just reviewing from this morning. The other points will be a little bit shorter, but our God is incredibly gracious and will still use you even after you've blown it. Look at verse 20. Look at the first words of verse 20. He says, don't be afraid. I'll tell you, friends, finally, look at verse 19. In verse 19, they said, okay, we've done it. We've been evil. Remember, they're, they're reacting back and forth with Samuel as he's preaching. They're saying yes. They're saying no. They're saying he is his witness all through. Finally, in verse 19, they cry out, we have sinned against God. We have been wrong. And the thing I want you to remember, friends, is this. How, how merciful and gracious and kind is our God that He's incredibly gracious and will still use you even after you've blown it. I'll tell you, friends, we had somebody that come to our church one time and, and wanted to join the church. And indeed, I said, sure, I'll love for you to join the church. And I spent time talking with him. And a couple of families came to me and they said, if a person like that is going to join this church, then we're leaving. And I hate it when people leave this church. I lose sleep over it. But I've got to tell you, I had to say to them, as kindly as I know, there's the door. Because if we're going to stop and say that you can write somebody else off as if somebody has done some kind of sin which makes them unusable, I'm going to tell you that you're speaking from the heart of the Pharisee. Because there is a God out there that these people rejected Him again and again for 400 years. You can read the history. They were never thankful. They were never grateful. You read the 106th Psalm. It says they forgot the Lord again. And then He did this for them. And they forgot the Lord again. And he is a God so full of, of mercy and so kind towards his people that even when he has blown it, as soon as verse 19 is off of their lips, the first thing Samuel the prophet says, and Samuel was afraid of nobody, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And there is great news for you as a Christian, and that is this. Repentance brings a freshness to the darkest and hopeless of situations. And especially as you go through your life, just remember the first Samuel was written to give you hope and encouragement to keep you living your Christian life. Well, friends, I want you to remember that this, that one of the reasons that, that we don't see the smile of God often is because first, He's trying to get us to see our own sin, and He'll relentlessly pursue us until we do, but the moment we acknowledge our guilt, confess our sins, repent of the way that we've gone that is wrong, He swarms us with greatness and overwhelms us with His kindness, and He's so ready then to use the brokenhearted person. I would even go so far to say as this, people that don't know what it is to have a stricken conscience, People who don't know what it is to have the, the hand of God crush their soul and for them to see that they are really, truly wicked. Deep down in their heart, wicked. Until you've come to see that in your own life, I want you to know that I doubt if you really know what it means to sing of the grace of God. Because it is the people that have come to realize, I am a man undone. Woe is me. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies, which I just quoted from four men in the Bible. That come to the place that sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so it is people like this that come to understand the greatness of God. And don't you ever think that you've gone beyond blowing it. The reason this is written is to give you hope and encouragement to keep on going. In fact, I tell you what I wish. I wish there were more people that were brokenhearted and could say, how could God use me? I'm too wicked. That's when God's going to start to use you. Exactly. Well, what's next? Here's next. What is success? Look again at verses 2 through 5. Let's stop and ask this question. What is success? What is success? Samuel stands up. He'd been in the temple from the time he was three until now he's an old gray-haired man. I could ask some of you gray hairs how old you are, but we won't. But notice what he says. He says, now you've got your king, your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray. My sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? 
From whose hand have I acknowledged the bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. Friends, we often miss what it means to be successful in ministry. What is it to be successful? Is it numbers or is it faithfulness? Is it power or is it purity? Is it wealth or is it integrity? Is it popularity or is it holding to the truth? Remember, he had grown up with Hophni and Phinehas. He had seen all kinds of wickedness. He had seen them sleeping with women in the tent, the Bible says. He had seen them scooping out the extra meat for themselves selfishly, and he didn't give in. He says, all these years, I've been there. Can anybody here, and we're talking many, many years, can anybody here accuse me of guilt? Sounds a lot like the great Savior that came and turned to the Pharisees and said, can anybody here accuse me of sin? Kent Hughes wrote a book called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome in which is a book that is the philosophical, has a lot to do with the philosophy of this church. And in that book, he says, success is serving. Success is loving. Success is praying. Success is integrity. And he goes on through the book, and I'm going to tell you, it's fantastic, because you don't hear this anymore, and pastors are under a tremendous amount of pressure to be successful in the area of numbers, which often means that you are not successful in other areas. And we need to keep that before us at all times. What is success? Another key point, that's just a light one here that I wanted to pass over, but here's another key point, and that is this. You're in a lifelong battle with spiritual amnesia. Look again at verses 6 through 12. In verses 6 through 12, the scripture says, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. Now look at it, he's going to confront them. He's a, he just got done saying, I'm vindicated. Now I'm going to tell you, the Lord also is vindicated. He's been faithful, and you haven't. Look what he has done. And then in verses 6 through 8, he talks about God's faithfulness in delivering them out of Egypt. And in verses 9 through 11, he talks about God's faithfulness in delivering them out of Canaan. And the point is, again and again and again and again, they messed up. And you can remember the vicious cycle in the book of Judges. They would, they would get fat, and as a result of getting fat and sassy, they would get backslidden. And as a result of getting backslidden, God would bring judgment. As a result of judgment, they would cry out. And God, as a result of crying out yet again, God was so merciful and so kind to His people, He would send someone to deliver them. Now friends, one of the things that I think is absolutely staggering for you to consider is this. You are in a lifelong battle with spiritual amnesia. You're not going to believe this. Guess how many times in the Old Testament God approaches Israel about the fact that they had forgotten they'd been delivered from Egypt? You aren't going to believe it. 125 times God sends a prophet to the nation Israel and says to them, Look, I delivered you out of Egypt. I parted the Red Sea. I did this fantastic thing for you. How is it that you can forget it? I'll tell you, that is striking to consider. It's even many other times in the New Testament, even in the book of Jude, the next to last book of the Bible that talks about that. And I will tell you, friends, that it's still true today. And that is we've had a greater deliverance than that of the exodus out of Egypt. We've had a deliverance from our sins. We have been a people that have tasted the grace of God that, that, that He has washed away our sins forever. We have known what it is to be brought up out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and have our feet set upon a rock. We know what it is to taste of the salvation and the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? There's a problem that we all have is that we have a hole in our heart. And we've got to remember something. that spiritual amnesia, you don't have to do anything for it. You just have to be a normal human being and you'll get spiritual amnesia. And that is you have a tendency to forget. 
One of the great hymns of the faith says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I wonder what it's like when Christians sit around and go, you're not going to believe what's happened to me. Now I've got this problem and I've got that problem and I'm just so upset here. And by the way, this could be Kim Coffin. You could play me back. Or you say, well, what are you saying, Kim? Are you saying that everybody... No, it starts with me. I would freely grant that. But how sick it must be if God says 125 times to Israel, I delivered you out of Egypt and you forgot it. How could you do that? Just stop and think. If, if for, some, just, for just some unknown reason... I just decided to be extra nice to Stuart. And I said, Stuart, here, I want you to have my car. Stuart, here, I want you to have my savings account. Uh, maybe I could be nicer in other ways than that. But uh, Stuart, here, I want And I just give this all to Stuart. And you know, a few months later, I see Stuart, and he goes, uh, what was your name again? What was it? Oh, Kim, that's right, Kim. I remember seeing it on the title when I switched titles. That's right, Kim. I remember seeing it. You know, I'd say, man, thanks a lot, Stuart. Thanks a lot, pal. I appreciate it. I'd go take him to the doctor. He needs to get checked up. Well, stop and think, friends. What does communion say? Our communion table is never here when I use this illustration. But where, where is it? What's the front of the communion table say? This do in remembrance of me. The Lord does not want us to forget why Jesus Christ died. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it is a battle. And can I ask you tonight, are you saying, are you grateful that Jesus died for you? Are you thankful? Are, in your heart, do you know that your sins have been forgiven and is there a rejoicing that takes place? Well, I'll tell you, friends, if you went to the doctor because you started getting amnesia, you're, you're, you don't remember anything, and that you're, certainly your spouse would take you to the doctor or your friend, and the doctor would say, okay, you get checked, he gives you some medication, you get better, and the next day you couldn't remember anything again. And can I tell you, that is somewhat the picture of the Christian life. Can anyone here tell me of a car that you've purchased that you don't need to put gas in on a regular basis? You have to continually put gas in your car. Why? Because it runs out. And you have to constantly keep checking that. And can I tell you, with that, that hole in the heart in which our minds get renewed and the gratefulness towards God and what He has done drips right out, and can I tell you what it is to take your car to the gas station? It's called going to church. And can I tell you what else it is? It's called having fellowship with Christians on a meaningful spiritual level. And can I tell you what it is? It's accountability, where you have somebody in your face that says, you know, I hear you complaining a lot more than I hear you praising. You need to straighten up. And you know what else it means? It means communion, having renewal at communion, and not just going through, oh, now we got to take communion, <laughs> we slop it down. But that we would be serious about the fact that we would really do some examining during our communion time. It also means regular devotion. I still think it's so, so ironic to see what Saul had to do when he became king. He had to copy Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy down on the paper. And he had to sit there and do it, and then he had to read it day after day. And the reason the king of Israel had to do that is he might remember that he is not better than those that he rules over. And can I tell you, that regular time in the Word of God has a process of humbling us and renewing us, and we need to have real time in God's Word. It's so important. The person who is grateful is a person who remembers what God has done, and that person is fruitful. Can anyone here ever tell me that they've met somebody who was grateful on a regular basis and they didn't like that person? You like people that are grateful, and people that are grateful are people with, that are Christians are people with good memories, continuing to remember the great salvation that we have. A couple other things I want you to see are this. Just two more. Actually, two more than one I'm going to have added. 
God will not forsake His people. You know, this is such a great point. This is such an important point. You know, we hear messages on obedience, and boy, we've heard some good ones here in the past, and I love them. I'm not talking about mine, I'm talking about other people around here that have given them. You, know, you, hear, you hear some great teaching about the importance of, of living for God. But you know something, friends? In reality, if you really tempt to live a godly life, you're made very much aware of how weak you are. And I want you to know that when you feel so weak, and you feel like, you know, my Christian life didn't work out. Other people's, it seems like they do. Mine doesn't. I just don't seem to get it. And I know of many Christians that have been around Christian testimony services and they felt like giving up because all they ever heard about was how victorious everybody was. And one thing I want you to know is in verses 16 through 25 is the moment these people repent, God overwhelms them and swarms them with His mercy. Steve had us read a verse a few Sundays ago in church and I'm going to tell you this one struck me because I've been spending all this time in 1 Samuel and Judges. And look what this verse said. Psalm 99.8 O Lord our God, You answered them but you were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished them for their misdeeds. Here is a great picture that most Christians don't understand. When you enter a covenant relationship with God, God takes His end of that covenant very seriously. And though you may goof off, God won't. And though you may be slack in your covenant commitment, God won't. And one of the things I want you to see is, you, God was a forgiving God, and yes, He certainly is, but He punishes His people, His children, for their misdeeds. You know what this reflects of? Hebrews chapter 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faint when thou art rebuked of Him. For whom the Lord chasteneth, He loves. Everybody that's a true son gets chastened. And the idea is He gets severely whipped, He gets flogged. And here it is, one of the things we have to understand is, do not interpret the chastening of God as God forsaking you. The chastening of God is to be understood as the loving hand of the Almighty. This is something that is through and through in Scripture. And the reason I say that is the children of Israel in the wilderness. You can read about this in Deuteronomy. There they are in the wilderness. And you know what happens? They're out there in the wilderness and they say this. It's because God hated us that He brought us out here. Stop and think about it. They crossed the Red Sea. They were fed with manna. They were fed with, with quail. They were fed with water out of the rock. God had provided for them in every way and listen to what they say. They say it's because God hated us, He brought us out here. I'm going to tell you, friends, that's that spiritual amnesia again and something that we've got to realize is the said principle in Scripture. God does not forsake His people. Now, He may punish His people, but that's altogether different than forsaking His people. If you want to know something about God, you can understand that He is steadfastly loyal to the covenants that He makes. He will not let go of you. And sometimes the Christian life is pictured, and I think rightly so, that we need to be pursuing Him and hanging on to Him. But I'm going to tell you, if it was all dependent on my grip, I would have fallen long time ago. I am so glad to know that He is holding me. And you can be confident in the fact that God doesn't forsake His people. His mercy endures forever upon those who fear Him. In fact, look at this. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In fact, look what He does. He wants them to see their great evil. He pursues them to see it. And then He wants to show His great steadfastness in verses 20-25. through 25. Verse 22, actually, let's start there. For the sake of the great name, the Lord will not reject His people. 
because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Samuel goes down in Scripture as one of the great intercessors. One place God says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me, I would not listen to them for these people. But you know what? Great intercessors come about because they see God's glory and they're concerned about God's testimony among the lost. And you know what? In Amos, great intercessors are, are about pe- the people of God who care, the, the, the servants of God who care for the people of God. And notice verse 23. What is the ministry of Samuel the prophet? What is it? You can say it two things. Number one, it's prayer. And number two, it's teaching. He says, I, I, I won't sin by ceasing to pray for you and I will continue to teach you the good and the right way. You know, if you go to the book of Acts chapter 6, you'll see that the reason the elders had deacons for the first time is that they could give themselves continually to the Word of God and to prayer. If you went to see what Jesus Christ is doing for us right now, His work of teaching is over. And so what is He doing now? He's praying for us. If you want to know what is best for God's people, it is that God's people would have shepherds that would pray for them and would teach them the Word. You want to understand a biblical philosophy of ministry because everybody has got this coming out of the just flipping over the gutters. There's just so much gunk out there in regards to what should the churches be doing. The churches should be praying, especially the leaders, and they should be teaching the right and the good way to the people. This is what Samuel did. This is what is supposed to go on. All through the pastorals, it says things like this, with careful instruction and great patience, teach the Scriptures day in and day out. I'll tell you, friends, how important it is, more than you'll ever realize, that God would give to the church pastor-teachers. And I wasn't there, but I understood that there was a great thing happened at Promise Keepers last night. I understand that of 63,000 people at Promise Keepers, that 4,000 of them were asked to come forward that were, that were pastors. And some 4,000 pastors went forward. And there was a time of, of encouraging and cheering and praying going on for these pastors. I got some nice letters of some men that were there and some nice comments today. They said, you know, we were, we were encouraged to encourage you. And we want to do it. We want to do it more. I got to tell you, the scripture says things like this. Hold men that preach the word of God in the highest esteem. Have great regard for them. And I'll tell you, friends, could I encourage you to put pressure on this pastoral staff to stay faithful to prayer and faithful to the word? Can I tell you why? There's all kinds of pressures to be program oriented. There's all kinds of pressures to have some kind of new methodology. And I tell you what the church of Jesus Christ needs is men that know how to pray and men that know how to handle God's word with power in their lives when they preach. This is what we need. And I'm going to tell you, I want to encourage you that God will raise up servants who have the welfare of His people for their preoccupation. The last thing I want you to see, we don't have in the overhead, but it comes from verse 12. And it's very short, but I want you to get it. It says in verse 12, But when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over you. A very basic principle in Christianity is this. You must live by faith. And what was going on at this time in Israel, we never found out about this until we get to this chapter. But at this time in Israel, look, look me again, show you what was happening. Here you have Israel in this part of the map right here. Here on the southwest, you have the Philistines who were coming into power again. And here you have the Ammonites, which were led by this evil king Nahash, who was going around gouging people's eyes out. And as a result of this, it says, when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, starting to come on strong, that's when you started to ask for a king. Now, we never knew that in chapters 8 when we read about it. But that was the pressure. 
And can I tell you what this pressure is? Many of you have lived the Christian life for many years and suddenly you're in a trial and you go, that's it, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, I don't want any more. Can I tell you what that actually is? That's rejecting God. That's what it says. It says you rejected me. And they said, here's what we'll do. We will get a government that will save us rather than a God that can rescue us. We will get a government that can save us. And so they, they, they miss in a very big way God's point. And here's the, the, the principle for your life today is this. Trust in Him at all times. Don't scheme. Don't rationalize. Keep your mind fixed on Lord God, Jehovah. I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to live for Him no matter how costly it may become. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father in Heaven, it's our desire that we would put these principles into practice. That we would not be a people that are just quick to hear and then go away and forget. That there might be the rescuing of spiritual amnesia. And Lord, could I ask this, that day after day, through the fellowship of friends and through the teaching on Wednesdays and through the teaching on Thursdays at Technon Theyu, through the teaching at the ladies' Bible studies a couple different days a week, through the Friday morning Amen, through Sunday school, through Sunday morning, through Sunday night, as this church has opportunities to minister, we would pray that this church could be a, a vessel of, of, of putting a stop hold in spiritual amnesia and reminding people of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Oh, our Father in Heaven, it's our desire that You would keep us encouraging one another and pro promoting each other on to further the cause. Help us, Father, to be a church that, that regularly renews each other's minds and helps us to live more for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And that concludes today's expository word. If you have additional recorded messages of Kimber at home and would consider sharing them with our audience, please contact us through our email at theexpositoryword at gmail.com. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.